0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, good morning Anchor Church. It is great to see you here this morning. My name is Matt Lead, pastor at Anchor, part of the Erskineville Gospel Community and... uh, it's good to see you at church. Welcome, especially if you're new. We love having new people, so thanks for visiting us this morning. We hope you stay forever. That would be our that would be our hope that you would never leave. Hey, um I just uh I I'm also in a triplet. I'm actually in two triplets at the moment. I'm in a triplet with with Dave and Aiden, and that's been a a long-standing triplet with those guys. I'm also in a triplet with um James and James, um, two of the younger guys, and they've both been super beneficial for me. Um and even being in a triplet with the young guys, is, is actually I've, God has taught me a lot through them. Um, and it's funny how even with those guys, we're on this real similar journey at the moment. And so um, God is, uh, has used them to shape me, to make me a, a, a better husband, a better pastor, a better leader. So I want to encourage those of you who aren't in a triplet yet to explore. Just, just dip your toes in the shallow end and experience what it's like to be part of really intimate a group of people who care for you and won't just give you good advice, but will give you the good news which we need. Um, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead uh, and open it up there, Acts chapter 6. We're, we've got a lot of scripture to cover this morning and we're not going to be able to read all of it. So I'm going to read a little bit of it at the start. I'm going to cover some of it in summary, and, and but we are going to do a lot of reading. So you have to track with me this morning as best you can. So Acts chapter 6 verse 8. Is where we left off last week from Brad's awesome reminder of what needs to be central in our church life. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. I left my Bible, so I'm going to have to use my phone, which is okay. It's still the Word of God. If you use a phone, don't feel guilty. Sometimes that happens, you know. It's like, oh, the phone. You shouldn't use the phone. You should bring a real Bible. It is a real Bible. All right, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. and we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks, that you are the God who stands to welcome your martyrs home. And God, as we hear of the, the first person after the Lord Jesus to die for their faith. We pray that you might speak to us this morning by your Spirit, that you would radically transform and change us, that you help us to know what it looks like to boldly cling to the truths, that Jesus is radical, that he is your presence on earth, that you cannot be put in a box, that you cannot be contained. God, we pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear what you are saying. We ask it in Jesus' name and all those who agreed said, Amen. The last two weeks we've, um, we've been doing the, uh, the wedding stint. So wedding on Saturday and then the long commute back on a late on a Saturday night um, back to, to Sydney to get ready for church on Sunday morning. And uh, last week was uh, deep in the Southern Highlands and it was freezing cold. And last night it was deep in the Blue Mountains in Oberon and it was like minus four driving home last night. But um, as I was driving back these last two weeks, um, God gave me a bit of perspective, right? And I just want to honor someone this morning um, uh, for a second, because there are heaps of reasons why you might miss church. There are heaps of reasons why you might choose not to come to Anchor and go to another church. And one of those might be if you work really late on a Saturday night and finish shooting weddings and drive home at 2, 2 2.30 a.m. in the morning and then get up to go to church. And I I was at a wedding last night where Josh McHale was a wedding photographer, and I don't know if Josh made it this morning. Is he here? He's right here down the front row. Josh does this half the year. He's driving back from the Southern Highlands or the Blue Mountains or some remote place that looks amazing in photos, but it is brutal to drive back late on a Saturday night, get up tired, and, and come to church. So I just wanted to honor Josh because he does that so frequently. I've done it the last two weeks, I'm like, how does anyone do this? But um, good on you, bro, for for doing that. But um, last last night it was James and Rachel's wedding, and it was phenomenal. It was such a crazy wedding. It was great. We they got married in a barn, and then we had their um, their ceremony ceremony reception their reception in this like crazy cool like handmade timber barn. It was it was unbelievable. Um, but the crazy thing about their wedding was that James catered it himself. And so he designed the menu and ordered the food and spent all of this last week preparing the food. And then he had a bit of help from Geordie and some of the team to, to cook it because obviously he couldn't cook it while um, while he was getting married. But he literally was in the kitchen preparing desserts and then plating up and then serving tables at his own wedding. And no one could get him out of the um, No one could get him out of the kitchen, including the the Deputy Opposition Minister, Tanya Plebisik, who was there. And she was the only person that kind of came close to trying to get James out of the kitchen. But he literally catered and cooked and served his own wedding. And here we see Stephen preaching his own funeral. But last night's wedding was a feast. It was an incredible feast. And they, they just kept bringing out these massive share plates of food. They had like... Red wine-soaked octopus and beef brisket and lamb shanks and chicken. And they just would plonk these massive plates of food out. And we would all just hook in. It was a big share plate. You would eat it. It was a feast. It was amazing. And it just kept coming. Plate after plate after plate after plate after plate of food. And it was amazing food. And it was tasty. And as we were sitting there, I was like, that's what tomorrow's sermon is going to feel like for God's people. Because we're going to have a feast this morning. And we're going to have a feast of theology. Now that might not excite you, but that excites me because I love theology and you ought to love theology because theology is important. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to have this like rapid fire run through Old Testament history as Stephen traces us through some of the really important key moments in the life of God's people in the Old Testament. And my hope is this morning that maybe for you, Some light bulbs might go off. And this happened for me when I was 18 years old. I remember going to my first youth leaders training conference up the Blue Mountains. And it was the very first time when I realized, like I'd grown up in church, been to Sunday school, all of that. The first time I'd realized that the Bible was one story. And it blew me away. I was like, no way. Moses and Joseph and all of these people are actually all about Jesus. And what I want you to see is that there are threads that God has woven from Genesis all the way through to Revelation that tie this whole story together. And it's all about Jesus. Come on, you guys are going to have to work with me this morning. I cannot be the only person who's excited about theology this morning. So we're going to do this rapid fire run through the Old Testament this morning, and um, I want you to see that this story holds together. But as we come to that, Stephen here is accused of trash-talking both the temple and the law, both God's presence and God's messenger of the law, Moses. And so they Haul Stephen in and they accuse him. And this accusation is serious because these are the two most important things to God's people. His law and his presence in the temple. And so to be accused of trash talking those two things is serious. Stephen knows it. They know it. But the question that Stephen has is, what does Jesus say on this matter? What does Jesus say about... The temple and the law. And so let's come to John chapter 2, verse 19, to, to see where Jesus lands on these things first. Jesus says this in John 2:19, Jesus answered them, speaking to the, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, Well, it's taken forty-six years to build this temple. And you will rise it up after three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus is called, as he comes, John chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, he is Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, in John 1, it says that Jesus came and dwelt with us. And that word is that he tabernacled with us. It's the same word that's used of the tent of meeting that... um, that that um, God's people build and walk through the desert with and God meets with them in. It says that Jesus comes and tabernacles with his people, that he dwells with them, that he is the temple, that he is the very presence of God and that he gives us access to the presence of God. That's why at the crucifixion, when Jesus dies, that moment the curtain in the temple is torn. That, that, that symbolic curtain that separated sinful people from the holy presence of God, in the holy of holies, that curtain is torn in two to to say, now Jesus is the one who gives us access to the presence of God. That's why we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's why no longer do we offer blood sacrifice, because in Hebrews 9.12, it says that Jesus secures eternal redemption by his blood. He is our high priest who bursts open access to the presence of God. You see what the temple merely represented, Jesus comes and fulfills. He is the reality of the thing that the temple pointed towards. So Jesus has this radical teaching about the temple and the place in the presence of God. And he's saying, it's about me. You find that in me. You meet God in me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's all about Jesus. That's the first thing that Jesus teaches. The second thing about the law, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, i not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. I've not come to get rid of this. I've come to show you what they were always really about. All of the Old Testament sacrificial laws were really about saying God is holy and He requires sacrifice. And Jesus says, I'm the Lamb of God who lays down my life. I've not come to get rid of that. I've come to fulfill it. So Jesus has these radical statements. In fact, if you remember the account of Jesus walking along the uh, Emmaus Road with the two disciples at the end of Luke chapter 24, and they're discussing the things of God. And Jesus, it says there that Jesus opened up the Scriptures and beginning with Moses and the prophets showed them how it all pointed to Him. All of it, all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, as in, and is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the hero of every page, and it's all about Jesus. And so as Stephen stands there before the trial, before the very same men that crucified Jesus, the same men that Peter and John had stood before, when he's given opportunity, what does he do? He preaches. Everyone turn to someone around you and say, he preaches. Pa reaches. That's it. They all do it. They all do it in acts when someone's given an opportunity they preach and when we're given opportunity we preach. preach. That's it. No prep time, no notes, no opportunity to consult with the commentaries. He stands up and he delivers this this massive historical account of the Life of the people of God and how God has been at work. He preaches because Stephen knew his Bible. His life was saturated with the Scriptures. He didn't stumble over the details. He didn't get lost in the chronology of who was first. Was it Abraham? Was it Joseph? I kind of remember that he knew because his life was a life that was saturated in the Scriptures. It's important to know our Bibles. It's important for us to know the story of God so that if an opportunity is presented to us, we're ready to go. We're ready to tell the story. It's why Peter says, be prepared to give an answer, to give an account, a reason for the hope that you have. Peter is, sorry, Stephen here is ready. That's why we think that framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, those four movements of the story of God, that's helpful to remember so that you can tell the good news and it not be about you, it actually be about Jesus. Creation for redemption, restoration. Or maybe come to the equip course this afternoon and Jerusalem might give you some other tools that might be helpful for doing that. But Stephen was ready. He was ready to go and he took, takes us on this journey through the Old Testament focusing on the presence of God, the temple, the tabernacle, the law of God and the law's agent, Moses. And his purpose there is to show that God cannot be contained, that God is dynamic, that it's all about Jesus, that God is everywhere and that what Jesus taught was right and he's going to show them from the very scriptures they loved and read every single day. But Stephen is aware that the Jews had a problem. Israel had a problem. And their problem was that they treated the temple a bit like a lucky charm. They were like, well, as long as the temple's there, we're all good. Jeremiah, the prophet, called Israel out on this. In Jeremiah chapter 7, he said, Do not be deceived by that deceptive line, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It was kind of like their lucky charm. They thought as long as the temple of God is here, we are sweet, we're blessed. It doesn't really matter how we live. It doesn't matter what we say because God is here. The temple is here. We're good. Stephen is aware of that problem. And he wants them to see past the reality of the brick and mortar of that building to what stands behind it, the person of Jesus. And so he takes us on this history lesson. He literally schools the theological heavyweights of the day with four lessons. The lesson of Abraham, the lesson of Joseph, the lesson of Moses, and then the lesson of the kings. And so the first lesson here is the lesson of Abraham. Now we spent seven weeks, eight weeks? No, I don't even know how long. We spent a couple of weeks walking through the story of Abraham earlier this year. It began in Genesis chapter 11, remember, when Abraham is worshipping false gods with his family far outside of the promised land. And there, God calls him and says to him, leave your land, leave your country, leave your family and go where? To a land that I will tell you about And I will give to your descendants. And Abraham goes. And Stephen's point here is, guys, you remember, Abraham was a pagan. He was worshipping other gods before God showed up and called him. He was in a foreign land. And it says there in chapter 7, verse 2, that God appeared, that God appeared to Abraham. No temple, no tabernacle, and yet God is present. He's guiding. He is never restrained by the existence of or the lack of existence of a physical tent or a temple. And God's initiative there is to call Abraham and to give him the covenant of circumcision as a symbol and sign of his commitment to his people. And all of this points to the fact that before there was ever a place where God said he would dwell, he had a people That he was committed to. Well before there was ever a place, God had a people. A people. Inheritors of a promise that God had given. That's the first lesson here. Remember, your hero, Abraham, was a pagan worshipping God in a far off land. And God committed himself to calling a people. The second lesson that he gives is the lesson of Joseph. Remember Joseph? The end of Genesis, Joseph is one of the 12 brother, uh, sons of Jacob or of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph is the youngest of the 12 and his older brothers are jealous of him because he's he's a bit of a favorite of his dad's and he's got this special code and he has all these crazy dreams and so they're jealous of him. And so they they sell him into slavery, they reject him, they sell him into slavery. Some of the Egyptians purchase him and take him to live in a faraway land in Egypt. But it's there in Egypt that Joseph finds favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. Pharaoh puts him as the second most important person in his whole kingdom. The rejected one becomes God's deliverer as his people who are in famine come to Egypt in search of food. And there is Joseph giving out provision in the wisdom that God had given him. And we see here, it says in chapter 7 verse 9, That God was with Joseph. Where? Egypt. Egypt of all places. It's like saying God was with Daniel in Babylon. Here are the two arch enemies of God's people, Babylon and Egypt. And God was with Joseph in Egypt. Rejected by Israel. And yet God's appointed deliverer. And God is present with him. He's present with Abraham. He's present with Joseph. And there's no temple. There's no tabernacle. And he's there. The third lesson is the lesson of Moses. You remember Moses? Moses who was born to Israelite parents. And yet, because of an edict of Pharaoh to destroy all the babies, his mom floats him in a river and Pharaoh's daughter sees him and gets one of her servants to pick him up. She adopts him into her family. Moses is raised and educated in all of Egypt's education systems. And then one day he spies an Egyptian assaulting uh, an Israelite, one of his own people. And in a moment of rage, he murders that Egyptian, tries to cover up his tracks... The next day he sees two Israelites arguing, two brothers, and he comes to to separate them. And they say to him, who are you to judge between us? Are you going to murder us like you did that guy? And so Moses freaks out. He flees and he heads to a place called Midian, far away. And he's exiled there, away from God's people, rejected by God's people. And it's there at Mount Sinai that God shows up. This is what it says in chapter 7, verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, and an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I will come down and deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Stephen's point is this: as John Stott says, before, well, sorry, there is there is holy ground outside of the holy land. There is holy ground outside. Moses comes up. There is a burning bush and God says, take off your shoes. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Why? Because God is present. That's the point. It's got nothing to do with what building exists. It's got to do with where God is present. And don't we know that as we read through Israel's history, there are moments where God vacates the temple and says, shut the doors. I cannot stand your worship. What matters is where God is present. And so Stephen is building this case that there is holy ground wherever God chooses to dwell. That's Jesus' point. God has chosen to dwell. God has sent me as his representative, Emmanuel, God with us. And Stephen's simply reiterating that point that Jesus made. That God is present, that He is active, that He cannot be contained in four walls. You guys still with me? We're we're awake? Too much theology for a Sunday morning? Bad luck. This is good stuff. (coughs) So God calls Moses. Originally, just like Joseph, rejected by Israel, Moses becomes God's appointed deliverer of God's people. Brings them out of the slavery of Egypt into the Promised Land. Wandering the desert for 40 years, builds the tabernacle, all that kind of stuff. And we see that at Mount Sinai, the very place where God shows up to Moses, that God appears a second time and delivers the law. And the people of God get so impatient of waiting that they say to Aaron, build us a golden calf. We'll worship that instead. And you see time and time again, this cycle repeated that God's people, Israel, find themselves on the wrong side of God and the wrong side of God's appointed prophets and anointed people. And Stephen's very subtly saying, you realize that you guys are there again. That's the third lesson. So the lesson of Abraham, the lesson of Joseph, the lesson of Moses, and finally, the lesson from the patriarchs through to the kings. So Joshua who brings God's people into the promised land finally through to David and Solomon. And Joshua brings the tabernacle in. David desires to build a house for the Lord. God says, no, your son Solomon will. And Solomon builds this beautiful temple in all its splendor. And there is a celebration because God has said, here is where my presence will dwell. I will be with my people. We will set up the sacrificial system that will allow my people me to dwell in the midst of my people without wiping them out because I'm a holy God and yet even when they're in the promised land even when the temple is erected in all of its glory God says this Stephen points it out to them he says this in verse 48 yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands as the prophet says heaven is my throne And earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You see, Stephen's point is this. You cannot contain God. He doesn't live in a house that you make Him. What kind of a God is that? He is way bigger than that. You cannot contain God. And yes, while the temple was a part of God's plan and His purpose and a gift of His presence among His people... It was never meant to be the full reality and expression of God's presence with His people. It was always a concession because there were sinful people there. And so Stephen's not against the temple. What he's saying is, I want to offer you the better thing. I want to offer you what comes next. I want to offer you the fulfillment of it. It would be like being satisfied watching black and white television in 1972 when you could watch it in beautiful 4K color right now. So you you don't get it, guys. You're going back to black and white when this is what is offered to you. Jesus, the presence of God. Not only that, the Spirit of God poured out dwelling inside of us, but that's another sermon for another day. So, the four lessons there. The lesson of Abraham, the lesson of Joseph, the lesson of... Moses, and then the lesson of the kings, all about God's presence, his temple, his people, his rule. You ready for a bit more? Good, two people. The other thing that, um, that it's just amazing, like I've spent a couple of days poring over this passage, and it's way too long for us to read, so I'd encourage you to read it this week when you get a chance. But the other thing that's incredible about Stephen's speech here is he draws this, this theme of rejected deliverers. Rejected deliverers. You see, Joseph comes and he's rejected by Israel, his, his 11 brothers, rejected by them, but then he is God's appointed deliverer. You see, Moses. Moses comes and he is rejected by Israel, flees to Midian, but then he is God's appointed deliverer. And it's so clever of Stephen. He highlights these two men. And who else was the rejected deliverer? Jesus was. Jesus was the rejected deliverer. The one who these very men themselves rejected, nailed to the tree and killed. But he's the one. He's God's appointed deliverer for God's people. And Stephen's saying, you're missing it. You're missing it. It's all about Jesus. And then we get to verse 51, which is, um, man, these are fighting words. So let's go. uh, Acts chapter 7. Is that where we are? Yes. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. The accused becomes the accuser. That's crazy, right? That I mean, that's not a jab, right? Stephen's not like that's an uppercut. Like he is wound up and just actually that's not an uppercut. It's a bit dirty. It's an elbow, right? He's just like, mm, elbow them. Like, that is a punch and a half. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised of heart and ears. That is what the Israelites called the pagans. People who are far from God. Stephen's like, you get it? Here are the very people who are at the center of Israel's worship, the leaders, and he's saying, you guys are so far from God, you may as well be pagan. Stiff-necked, uncircumcised of ear and mind. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But he cried out in a loud voice. Sorry, they cried out in a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Like Stephen hasn't even finished his sermon. And they're they're rushing at him, covering their ears And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, stoning is a fairly brutal way to go. Theologian Fred, Frederick Buchner says this, Stoning someone to death, even someone as young and healthy as Stephen, isn't easy. You don't get the job done with the first few, few rocks. And even after you've got the man down, it's long, hot business. To prepare themselves for the workout they strip to the waist Got somebody to keep an eye on their things until they were through. They literally took their outer coat off so they could wind up with their arms and throw rock upon rock upon rock upon rock until Stephen was dead. And yet, Stephen sees past this earthly reality to something that's beautiful. He sees past these men who want to kill him, he sees Jesus. And he sees Jesus, get this, standing. That's not the picture we normally see of Jesus, isn't it? We, we normally see Jesus seated on the throne. Why? Because his, his work is finished. It's done. The work of the cross is complete. And here, Jesus, he stands. He stands as a witness, affirming that he sees Stephen, that he affirms. You see, in a court case, the judge sits The witness stands to give account. Here, Jesus, he stands. He stands and gives witness. (coughs) Gives witness. I've been yelling all night at a wedding over loud music and my voice is going again. Someone get me some vocal lessons. So Jesus stands. He stands to receive Stephen. And as Stephen closes his eyes in death, he opens them to see his Saviour in glory and to hear those words of commendation and approval, well done, good and faithful servant. Come. Jesus stands, a beautiful picture, standing for his church, standing for his martyr, standing as a witness And Luke does something very clever here as he narrates this story that Stephen tells and the the description of Stephen around it. Luke does something very clever. He draws a, a clear parallel between Stephen and Moses and Stephen and Jesus. Firstly, Stephen and Moses. We know that both Stephen and Moses performed signs and wonders, right? Moses performed all of the signs and wonders before Pharaoh tapped the rock, water came out, all that kind of stuff, right? Stephen is performing signs and wonders. Both of them were rejected by authority. Both of them stood before authority. And both of them had their face shining with the glory of God. Isn't that incredible? Stephen stands there. They're accusing him of trash-talking Moses. And what happens? God says, no, I'm going to make his face shine just like Moses. Now, you've got to understand, those men knew their Old Testament. They loved Moses. They'd read that story a billion times. And to my knowledge, Stephen is the only other person in the Scriptures whose face shines like that, outside of angels and, and Jesus and transfiguration, all that kind of stuff. But... He's the only other person, I think, whose face shot. Now, God is making a very clear statement. This is my messenger. I affirm him. That's the first contrast that that Luke gives us. The second one is between Jesus and Stephen. Both Jesus and Stephen were falsely accused. False witnesses came before them. Both Stephen and Jesus pray for the very men who are killing them. Both Stephen and Jesus cry out to God to receive their spirit. You see, Jesus, uh, Stephen lived like Jesus, spoke like Jesus, and died like Jesus. As an example for Jesus' people of what it looks like to be a follower. He teaches us how to live. He teaches us how to die in courage of the testimony of Jesus, with a complete view of Jesus' identity as the reigning and ruling and risen king and a willingness to extend the grace of Jesus, even when it comes to our enemies. know, I wonder if someone were to write an account of your life, what would be written? One who saw a a vision of Jesus as he is, was willing to stand for him and was willing to lay their life down for him. You know, this is a horrific moment in the history of the church. The first person to die for the name of Jesus, murdered, murdered. This is illegal what they did. But this moment is the catalyst for further expansion of the church and the kingdom of God. Have a look at uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, who we will see in a few weeks' time, approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Here's the deal now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. Those who were scattered went about preaching. Wolves come, wolves attack the church, the sheep scatter. But as they go, they go about preaching the word of God. Here's the deal even suffering can be ascending. Even suffering can be ascending. Isn't that incredible? God had commissioned these people in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 to take the good news to the ends of the earth. And maybe God got a bit impatient here and thought, they're not going, they're not going. I told them to go, they're not going, they're not going. Stephen dies, they scatter, they go. And we'll see Philip take the good news to Samaria first. Then he'll take the good news to an Ethiopian. And then finally, Jesus will grab a hold of this Saul and radically change his life and send him to the nations. God has a plan. Nothing will thwart it. Nothing will come against it. And even suffering can be ascending. I have a story here and I didn't check with the person if I could tell it. But I'm just going to tell it anyway and hope that I don't get in trouble. And uh, look, this is a lot more lighthearted than what happened to Stephen in the early church. But um, last week, um, Steve Avasulu was on production. Is Steve here? Where are you, bro? He's not here. I can tell the story, right? Good. So last week, Steve was on production, and um, he forgot the laptop. He was supposed to bring it, left it at home, really stressed out, and I, I think he rode here on his bike, because he's super fit, as Steve is, and um, needed to quickly get home, so he just jumped in an Uber, really stressed out, jumped in the Uber, and um, they were like, oh, you know what are you doing? And he said, oh, look, I'm really stressed out, I'm on production at church, I'll have my laptop at home, anyway... He had a brilliant conversation with the the Uber driver. I think there was someone else in the Uber as well. They were so inquisitive about Steve's effort to jump in an Uber, go home, get the laptop, come back. He ended up inviting them to church. So here is this moment where Steve's like stressed out, everything's going wrong, and yet in that moment, God had a plan. God had a plan for Steve to sit in an Uber and invite people to church. Maybe you're here. Maybe you are those people. Welcome if you're here. As I said at the start, we hope you never leave. And God sent Steve into your Uber for a purpose and a reason. Even suffering can be ascending. Church, I wonder if we are ready to stand for Jesus. Jesus stands for us. He stands to receive his church. He stands to receive the martyrs. He stands as witness. Are we ready to stand for the dangerous truth of Jesus? That he is the very presence of God amongst us. That he reigns and rules and stands victorious. That he is king. That God cannot be contained. Are we ready to stand for the dangerous truth of Jesus? Because I tell you what, religion will reject those truths. Our culture will reject those truths. Will we stand? Will we stand like Stephen? And the only way we will ever have the capacity to do that is if we have the right vision of Jesus. As we see his glory. Seated or standing at the right hand of the Father, reigning, exalted and ruling, this is Jesus. We do not worship a Jesus who is dead. We do not worship a Jesus who is simply a myth or a fable that is a psychological crutch for us. We worship a risen, ruling, reigning Jesus who will return to gather His people back to Him. That is our Jesus. That is our King. Church, are we ready to stand for Him? Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we ask that you might lift the eyes of our faith to see you for who you are. To see a true vision. God, peel back the earthly firmament and give us a vision of you on your throne reigning, ruling, standing. And we pray that that vision of your son Jesus would so fill us with courage that we would stand for you now that we would stand for the dangerous truth that Jesus is the very presence of God, the truth that neither religion nor secular culture likes but a truth that is true because you have revealed it, you've demonstrated you've shown it give us that vision this morning we pray we ask it in the strong name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.